This is episode 304 of That Shakespeare Life. There's special behind-the-scenes content of the making of our show, including a video version of our podcast episode and other Insider Shakespeare extras available right now on Patreon. Sign up today at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hello, I'm Ben Crystal, actor, author, and explorer of original practices in Shakespeare. And another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And so the term declension arose when Latin grammarians started to think of a way of describing what happens when all the different forms of a noun, for example, or a pronoun, are linked together. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In the play Merry Wives of Windsor, as well as Hamlet and Richard III, the phrase declension of pronouns comes up as a description of language. That's not a phrase I remember being taught in English class when I was in school, and maybe it's a new one for you, too. It actually relates to the study of Latin, the language of education for Shakespeare's lifetime, and indeed across all of Europe for this time period. Here today to explain for us exactly what a declension might be, how to use them, and what it helps to understand about things like nouns, pronouns, and spelling for the 16th century when you are exploring Shakespeare's plays, is our friend and returning guest here to That Shakespeare Life, Professor David Crystal. David Crystal is a professional historian and linguist connected with the University College Bangor, as well as University of Reading. In 1995, he was awarded the OBE for services to the English language and became a fellow of the British Academy in 2000. He published over a 100 books, including the stories of English and the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language, and his most recent book, co-authored with his son and professional of original pronunciation on stage, Ben Crystal, is titled Everyday Shakespeare. That book is out now. You can find links to more information on David Crystal, where to get a copy of his latest book, and more information and resources on the history of linguistics from Shakespeare's lifetime in the show notes for today's episode. Before we talk with David about the history of declension of pronouns, I want to tell you about our Experience Shakespeare Activity Kits. These kits are digital history activity kits designed to let you go beyond the episode and really try out a piece of Shakespeare's history for yourself. These are games, recipes, and crafts straight from the 16th and early 17th century that you can do at home or in your classroom. You can learn things like how to play Naughty, a 16th century card game that comes up in Two Gentlemen of Verona. You can make your own March pain or even get a little sciency with your history when you try out how to turn blue ink red using a recipe from Hugh Platt printed in the 1580s. All of our kits are designed to be completed with items you may already have at home or can easily find at your local market or store. The kits include history guides to the activity that you're learning, video tutorials, printable classroom resources, and of course, each kit coordinates with Shakespeare's plays and specific episodes of our show so you can learn from the world's leading experts while you try out the activity and really enhance your study of Shakespeare's plays with some hands-on history that make 
the plays make so much more sense. Learn more and try out your first Shakespeare activity right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hello, David. So glad to have you back here with us on that Shakespeare life. It's a pleasure, Cassidy. Good to be with you. So what is a declension of pronouns? That's a mouthful just to say. Well, you have to begin by understanding what an inflectional system is in language. Uh, English used to be an inflected language. There are lots of inflected languages in the world. And languages like French and so on have many more endings. Inflection simply means the endings on words. Now, English today hasn't got very many. I mean, we've got the plural inflection, boy, boys, uh, the apostrophe S inflection, you know, to express possession. But in Old English, it was a very full inflected language. And the same was in Latin, which was, of course, the language of education during the Middle Ages. And so the term declension arose when Latin grammarians started to think of a way of describing what happens when all the different forms of a noun, for example, or a pronoun are linked together. And you've got half a dozen different variations, different types of ending. And so they chose this term declension, meaning to decline, to go down, to decline, to go down the forms of the noun through all its different functions. Modern English, we, we don't do it. But in Old English and in uh, Latin, of course, they did. And so uh, that general sense of a grammatical concept of decline was the first and then later other senses of decline came in, you know, like the ones we have today. So almost something like being able to conjugate your verbs. It was a form that you could identify. Yes, that's that's right. Uh, conjugate is in relation to verbs. Decline, declension is in relation to nouns and pronouns, of course. That's the the main use that you find in Shakespeare. Can you give us an example of a declension of pronouns? Well, take the one that, that turns up in The Merry Wives of Windsor when uh, William is getting his Latin class from his tutor. And uh, the tutor's very upset because, oh, poor old William isn't getting his uh, his quees and quays and quads right. Now, qui, quay, quad, what is that in Latin? That's the equivalent of when you say in modern English, uh, which or that, as it, which something or other, or that something or other. Which chair are you sitting on? You know, that sort of thing. And if you go down qui, que, quad, go all the way down, that's the nominative case. That's the case you'd use if it's the subject of a sentence. And then you've got quem, quam, quad. That's the case you'd use if it was the object of a verb. And then you've got cuius, 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 which is the genitive, the possessive thing, I suppose, in modern English, whose rather than who. And then two or four something would be cui, cui, cui. This is masculine, feminine, and neuter, you see, the three genders that there are in Latin. And then the final one would be the ablative case, quo, qua, quo, like sort of by whom rather than to whom or for whom. So you've got, you know, all together, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, have 15 different endings here. No wonder William was getting confused. 
it was a lot to keep up with. I feel I feel for him. He wasn't just a neglectful student. It was a large order. He I, was I, I remember it well. When I learned Latin in school, I mean, this, this was such a pain. It took ages and ages and ages to assimilate all those different case endings. Hamlet talks about declensions as an indication of madness, perhaps because of how hard it is to learn in the first place. But was there an association with how one spoke or what words they used and whether or not they were insane? Was there an association linguistically here? No, not really. It's Polonius who who actually says this, not Hamlet himself. Polonius is, is talking about the way in which he thinks Hamlet has gone mad. And so he, at one point talks about the stages of of madness. Um, He thinks it began as being simply a lowering, and then it became a weakness, and then it became a lightness, and then it became a madness. And he sees these four things as being, you know, slowly declining into some kind of awful state. So he's using this word decline in its modern sense, really. It's the way we would think of it today. But at that time, of course, it was a relatively new way of talking about things. It's one of Shakespeare's rather um, vivid ways of describing what's going on. I don't think declensions is a word I ever remember being taught in school in terms of of grammar. And maybe I just wasn't paying attention. But did you have any Latin in school in your day? Did you ever learn Latin? Other than a few phrases, I didn't. I wasn't yeah. taught Latin, you know, as a subject. No, not no. as such. It no. came up in in science as a necessary evil. Was kind of how we how <laughs> we handled it. We have to learn a few things. Yeah. But when there's this scene where Shakespeare has Sir Hugh Evans demand a declension of pronouns from the young William, and it's a scene that's intentionally reflective of education, and we know that Sir Hugh's interrogation of William here, it makes me wonder if declension of pronouns is legitimately something a young grammar school student would have known. I mean, was a young William in the sense of William Shakespeare being taught this in school? Oh, absolutely. Probably the whole reason why he wrote that scene in the first place, which is an unusual scene, it's it's uh, it's outside the, the plot of the play, is because William, that is Shakespeare, is remembering his own perhaps awful experience of having to learn Latin. Yes, Shakespeare would have had hundreds of hours of Latin classes throughout the five or six years he was in school. The school day in Shakespeare's time was enormous. You started early in the morning, you ended in the late afternoon. And a lot of the teaching was done in English, but some of the teaching was actually done in Latin. And as you go through the different stages, you know, grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, up through the the age range. So the the choice of what Latin texts you used was selected by the school and you studied them. So William would have studied virtually all the big Latin Roman scholars, writers of the time, Cicero, Ovid, all of those. He'd have gone through them. And the kids were expected to converse in Latin as well, you know, in a basic sort of domestic sort of way, not very intellectual. But nonetheless, he had a huge amount of Latin inside him. Obviously, some of it was a bit of a pain. I know this 
period, the Tudor period specifically, was a time when English as a whole was moving away from Middle English, the language of Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, and into what we call early modern English, primarily due to a shift towards intentional standardization of English that was going on in this period, such as establishing standard spellings and uniform rules for what pronouns were going to do, etc. And I expect there were several authors of manuals on language and arguments about what the standards would be, but what were the general standards that were agreed upon for this period, or at least maybe some key markers that define early modern English compared to Middle English or even later modern English? Yeah, well, not very many, actually. The whole process of standardization of English, as you say, began in the the Middle Ages and went on until the present day. And the main century of standardization is actually the 18th century. And in Shakespeare's time, there really wasn't very much of that kind of thing. Well, let's for a moment just talk about what we mean by standardization. What is a stat? What is what makes English standard? And it's not vocabulary because that can be varying all over the place. And it's not pronunciation either because accents go can go all over the place. No, standardization basically means spelling, punctuation, and grammar. Those are the three big areas that makes standard English standard, uh, as it were. Now, you have to take each of them separately. The standardization of spelling really begins with the introduction of printing. Uh, William Caxton, 150 or so years before, started to print texts and as a result had to start the process of standardizing spelling. By Shakespeare's time, it was not standard. If you look at all the texts in the first folio and around, then you see variations in spelling all the time. There was no standardization there. Now, people were aware of this, and they were getting very upset about it. And in the uh, 16th and early 17th century, several people wrote books about reforming English spelling trying to get it sorted out, get rid of some of those irregularities. Let's have a nice standard system. And the big spelling reformers of the 1500s, people like John Hart in his orthography or Richard Mulcaster in his elementary, these are people who were desperate to try and get English spelling sorted out. Of course, they didn't succeed. (laughs) English spelling stayed pretty irregular for the next couple of hundred years until the 18th century when other people tried to standardize it. And to some extent, it did then standardize. But today, we still have a lot of variation between British English and American English, for instance, and still lots of irregularity. So that's the spelling trend. The punctuation trend was even worse. There were no books written on punctuation in Shakespeare's time, simply because the punctuation system was evolving as Shakespeare was writing. Some of the punctuation marks we know today, like the semicolon, for instance, were coming into use for the first time in the late 16th century. And when, again, you look at something like the first folio or any of the plays written at the time, see all kinds of inconsistency in punctuation certainly wasn't a standard system at that time. And then the third big area of grammar, likewise, there were one or two attempts at grammar books before Shakespeare, but not really in any standardizing way, simply trying to describe English as if it, as if it were Latin, actually, using all the cases and everything uh, which English doesn't have. 
there were no real grammar books. There was no standardization there. So there's a lot of variation. Now, we know that this lack of standardization riled a lot of people because in the following century, in the 17th century, we find people saying things like this. Um, English is in a mess. It's a, it needs standardizing. Shakespeare and the others messed it up because they were so creative in grammar and everything. We need to sort this out. We need to have a set of rules that everybody can follow. And people like the poet Dryden and Jonathan Swift and others were recommending an academy for English that would do that sorting out. Well, they didn't succeed. But in the 18th century, we find the first real grammars of English that, that now for the first time recommends standard rules, prescriptive rules that everybody had to follow. And that's the point when you get uh, the modern English system really emerging as a school uh, grammatical system and a school spelling system and so on. So what were they talking about when they called it a grammar school if they weren't teaching defined grammar? Well, that was Latin grammar, you see. Um, that was the thing. Remember, th th this Latin was the universal medium of education in the Middle Ages in England, throughout Europe, in fact. It was the only way. People wrote all the textbooks in grammar. Uh, there was no English written at all until quite late on. Schools were called grammar schools for that particular reason. Was there any one writer in particular who was the celebrity of English language standardization or someone whose printed manuals on proper use of English had the most traction for Shakespeare's lifetime? No, absolutely nobody at all. There were one or two writers, as I mentioned just now, that tried to uh, sort out the spelling system, and they had a certain amount of influence. I mean, Richard Mulcaster, for instance, uh, he wrote a book called The Elementary, and it's basically an introduction to English spelling. And at the back, he lists uh, hundreds and hundreds of words, his recommendation of how they should be spelled. Now, he did have a lot of influence, so much so that uh, one school of thought thinks that there's a character in Shakespeare's plays in Love's Labour's Lost, the character of the schoolteacher Holofernes, that was based on Mulcaster, some people think. Uh, but they didn't have the kind of long-lasting influence that happened a couple of hundred years later. So no, there were no such characters at Shakespeare's time, and that is part of the problem which led people like Swift and Dryden and, uh, and also Defoe to say, oh, we need an academy, we need something that will help sort everything out. Well, you mentioned that Dryden and Swift were sort of blaming Shakespeare for having, quote, messed up the English language. And I wonder, what are the major publications from Shakespeare's lifetime that had the largest impact on the development of English that came after them? Did Shakespeare's writings influence the way that we speak today? Oh, yes. I, I mean, Shakespeare himself. Well, let's first of all say, what do we mean by influence? We mean influence on grammar, influence on vocabulary, and so on. Now, none of the writers of the time had a particularly great influence on the development of grammar. The grammar of Shakespeare's time is 95% the same as the grammar of English today. You know, there's not much change there. No, it's in vocabulary that we see the influence. Now, Shakespeare himself is well known as having introduced hundreds of words. Some people think it's uh, over a thousand words into English. 
their first recorded uses in the English language, and many of those have stayed, become part of modern English. So he's certainly the leader of innovation, but he's not the only one. All the writers of the time invented words, made them up in order to express what they wanted to say. Probably about half or three quarters of them died out, but you know, a good quarter of them remained and are part of the modern English language. Now, outside of Shakespeare, the two big things that caused long-term influence on vocabulary and idiom are religious in character, the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. King James Bible came along in 1611, the Book of Common Prayer uh, many decades before, and the King James Bible didn't so much introduce new vocabulary into English Uh, because it was a pretty conservative group of people that made that translation, and they kept their vocabulary pretty traditional. But no, in terms of the idioms that you have in English that are uh, part and parcel of the character of the language, King James Bible introduced probably more idioms into English than Shakespeare or anybody else did. I mean, I've got some examples here, which I can just read, read out for you. You know, examples like my brother's keeper, eye for an eye, to spy out the land, a man after his own heart, how are the mighty fallen, the uh, the skin of my teeth, out of the mouth of babes. All of these are King James Bible idioms, and they became part of the of, of the dynamic of the language, really. And then the Book of Common Prayer, not so many, but, you know, everybody will know things like... Uh, Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, that sort of thing, or the wedding ceremony, wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife? You know, this is this is all from the Book of Common Prayer. And so those two traditions uh, were extremely influential on the subsequent development of the language. I know we would love to explore more about declension of pronouns and the history of learning Latin and English and the development of that language from Shakespeare's lifetime. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, there are lots of introductions to um, early modern English that have been written, and there'll be a couple on your website, I imagine. In my own case, uh, I wrote a book called The Stories of English, which is an attempt to try and cover the whole range of development from Old English to the present day. And there's quite a good uh, sort of bibliography in that. But then any any account of the history of the English language will focus on the sorts of issues we've been talking about today. My own um, Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English language, this one that I was just uh, using just before to look up some examples, that's a uh, quite widely used as a as a resource for people interested in English linguistic history. Those are excellent resources, and we will indeed have links to resources you can use to learn more about our topic today, along with direct links to David's work where you can explore that further. And if you're interested in punctuation, like the question mark and the exclamation point for the English language, we have some podcast episodes on those, and I'll link to those in the show notes as well. So stay tuned for the URL for where to find those. David, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Oh, well, I would take the complete edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's online. I hope there is a signal on this island because the online edition is, of course, always being continuously updated 
It's a resource that I use probably every day in some respect or other. It is the most amazing historical account. And every word is a story. You know, every word has its own etymology, its own history. And as a result, one can never be bored uh, with a good historical dictionary like the OED is. I think that's an excellent suggestion for sure. And and absolutely a good use of your time there on the deserted island, I think. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, at the moment, as I sit here, we're just about my son, Ben, and I have just produced a book called Everyday Shakespeare, Lines for Life. And we're just about to take that on the road. In the UK, we have a very large number of literary festivals and they take place in, well, there are about four or five hundred of them in the country as a whole. And between now and Christmas, Ben and I are going to half a dozen of them to talk about this uh, new book. Everyday Shakespeare, Lines for Life. It's a day-by-day account of quotations, you know, a quote for the day, if you like, a thought for the day, but not the famous ones. This is not to be or not to be, that is the question, or you know, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. No, no, not those. We've gone, Ben and I went through the lesser known plays and pulled out quotations that mean something to us in everyday life. I mean, how often do you say, is this a dagger that I see before me? Not very often, I suspect. But there are lots of quotations which are very, very relevant to our everyday life, like, make not your thoughts your prisons. Or better three hours too soon than a minute too late. And quotes like that uh, form the backbone of our book. So we we have a day-by-day kind of situation, and we have put some commentary in and some explanation maybe, and that's the one we're taking around at the moment. So that's what's taking up our time right now. That's fantastic. I can't wait to check out this book. I do hope you come to the US with it so we can come and see you as well. But if you are in the UK, please check out one of these festivals. We'll place links in the show notes today so you can check out Everyday Shakespeare. And if you have not yet checked out the website Shakespeare's Words, we use that almost every day here at That Shakespeare Life to oh, look up for you. <laughs> yes, the, the definitions for the words in Shakespeare's plays. So definitely we'll place links to that as well. Thank you, David Crystal, for being here and walking us through the history of the declension of pronouns and the development of the English language for Shakespeare's lifetime as ever. It was a really fun conversation and I appreciate you sharing it with us. It's been a pleasure, Cassidy. Thank you. All the best. If you'd like to add your voice to our conversation today, be sure to join us over at the show notes. You can leave a question or a comment for David in the comment section, and you can explore the full show notes for bonus history and links to the resources mentioned in today's episode. Find all of these things packed into CassidyCash.com slash episode 304. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP304. Don't forget that you can go beyond the episode to explore inside that Shakespeare life when you join our Insider History Club on Patreon. Patrons get to see behind-the-scenes content and listen to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms. There's video versions of the podcast, printable educator resources, and a collection of digital history activity kits that let you try out some of the games, recipes, and crafts straight from the life of William Shakespeare for yourself. Join us inside turn-of-the-17th century England right now on patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. 
As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into that Shakespeare life.